2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, one of the three co-hosts of the podcast. The other two are right here, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey. Hey, you guys. How are you guys? Good. Well. Good no and well. No lethargy whatsoever. Only, only one of you has proper grammar. Uh, who's on the show this week, man? Uh, this week I talked to Catherine Eban, who is uh, an independent investigative journalist, uh, an incredible investigative journalist. She uh, has written a lot for Fortune. Um, she's written two big blockbuster books about the pharmaceutical industry, both of which are remarkably well-reported uh, and written. And the most recent one's called Bottle of Lies, and it's about generic drugs. It was out in 2019. And uh, I was really eager to talk to her about how she uncovers all this stuff and how she got into reporting on the healthcare system, which she's done for a really, really long time. If there was true like business scale parity, we would have as many pharmaceutical journalists on the show as tech journalists, right? Like this is probably one of the two or three biggest industries in America. I don't. I don't. Know I like the, to I quote the some size, fake <laughs> numbers that someone can later write an angry email about. You're welcome. I recently welcome. read on my own Twitter that it's one of the two or three largest industries in America. <laughs> All sorts of uh, fact checks, corrections should be sent to max at longform.org. Um, if you are looking to correct the record, no better way to do it than with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it easy uh, to uh, send out the uh, corrections and uh, error checking that's necessary for your project. Also, maybe promote it. Thanks to MailChimp for making this show possible. Now here's Evan with Catherine Eban. Catherine, welcome to the Longform Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. And I want to start by talking about just looking back through your work over many, many years You've basically been doing investigative journalism about all sorts of issues, but a lot about healthcare, the pharmaceutical industry, hospitals, for-profit healthcare for more than 20 years. And I want to know a little bit about where that started and how you came to develop the skills to eventually do the reporting that's in this latest book. So 
Where did you get interested in journalism? At what point did you get interested in journalism? Well, I was never a journalist in school. I didn't actually know that I was going to be a journalist at all. So it was I'm a really somewhat accidental journalist. I was in graduate school at Oxford University in England. I can say that you got a Rhodes Scholarship. You may not That's true. always say that, but I, I feel like I, I know that to be true, so I can say that. That's true. That's true. So I was, I was there, and I was studying Paradise Lost. I have a master's degree in 17th century epic Civil War poetry, which helps me not at all on a day-to-day <laughs> basis. Uh, That could have gone either way. You could have said, that helps me all the time. (laughs) Well, I mean, I would just say one thing about Paradise Lost, which is perhaps the seeds of my journalism career do lie there in the sense that, you know, one facet of John Milton's poem that everybody remarks on is that Satan is the most interesting character Mm. and God is a bore. And I think if you're going to be an investigative journalist, you've got to be really interested in evildoers. So I certainly was, but I was uh, maybe toying with being an academic and writing fiction on the side. So that was my life at the time. And then out of the blue, I was contacted by a former Brown alumnus named Ira Magaziner. I don't know if that name rings a bell. It does, yeah. So he was uh, Bill Clinton's healthcare czar, But before that, he was a management consultant in Rhode Island, and he wanted to create a sort of policy blueprint on healthcare. So he asked me, he called because I'd gone to Brown, and uh, he said, uh, do you want a summer job figuring out how the Europeans care for their elderly? So I tried to explain that I was like, studying epic poems, knew nothing about this. And why you? Did he know you somehow or pick you off a list? Yeah. (laughs) Well, he knew me because he had been a Rhodes Scholar. So here I was a Rhodes from Brown. I'd met him that, but I didn't know him really at all. Uh, But he thought, hey, she's already over there. So, you know, maybe she could run around to Swedish nursing homes and study. So I was like, I didn't really have any other summer plans so I said, okay. Uh, so his advice, go to pick three countries in Europe, figure out how they care for their elderly, and don't come back with a $30,000 bill was basically my assignment. So I did. I went to Swedish nursing homes. I spent time in Holland, studied the English system, wrote up this report, which I'm sure occupies some deep desk drawer. And then I spent three years in England studying. I did a graduate degree at the University of East Anglia in Norwich doing creative writing and came back to New York as an aspiring novelist and um, needed a job. You know, how am I going to pay the bills? So I started sending my uh, resume around, and it wound up with Mark Green, who was at that time the... Um, I know it's a crazy story, right? The public advocate of New York. So he said he needed a healthcare policy analyst. And I had this one thing on my resume. I've I've done that, sure. (laughs) So I'm like, okay. So I started writing these reports for Mark Green, and they were investigations. And they wound up on the front page of the New York Times. So I was like, I'm actually pretty good at this. You know, one early report was 
do New York City hospitals violate the Bell regulations that residents shouldn't spend more than 24 hours on call because they're tired and they can't take care of people. So I was like, well, I'll go in. I'll follow them around for 24 hours and see if they go home. And they didn't go home. So I wrote this report. Yep, the hospitals are violating the Bell regulations wound up on A1 of the New York Times. So at that point, yeah. And was it completely self-actuated in terms of like no one told you what to do? You just said, okay, I'm supposed to look into this. So I'll just go. I'll come up with how it's done. Yeah. So I'll just go gather proof. So, you know, in the course of doing this, I got to know a woman named Pam Breyer, who was the head of Bellevue. She knew I wanted to be a writer, of course, a fiction writer. But she said, if you want to write something about Bellevue, come in. So you can sit in any meeting you want. We'll put you on the trauma pager. You can go into the ER. The long and the short of it, first piece of journalism I ever did, I pitched to the New York Times magazine. I got an assignment. Then the New York Times was like, well, you can't work for Mark Green at the same time that you're doing this. That was fair. All right, I'll quit. Mark Green's office and just work on this article. <laughs> and eight months later, this piece came out in the New York Times Magazine, and it looked like I was a healthcare journalist, which I really wasn't, but I became one. Yeah. Uh, well, then all of a sudden you were. Yeah. I mean, this solves the mystery of just looking back through all your clips, and I thought there must be some missing <laughs> because the first one that appears yeah. is a gigantic yeah. investigation to Bellevue. Yeah. I mean, it's just bizarre. I had no experience. I'd never even written like an article for my college newspaper. But then I looked like a journalist, so I started doing healthcare coverage for the New York Observer. And then I was hired by the New York Times because I kept beating them on this story about jail care at Rikers Mm, Island. I saw that. Yeah, you did some observer pieces on that. Yeah. So, you know, it was very accidental. There was no J school, which I probably would have benefited from. I mean, it was just learning by doing. A lot of times it was a big mess because I didn't have sort of essential basic skills. And then once you get sourced, as you know, in a certain area, it's hard to stop writing about it. I mm. am um, would love to stop writing about pharmaceuticals, but it is such a swamp that if you're an investigative journalist, you know, and you get these tips and you have sources, it's hard to turn away. Yeah. So I'm like trapped in this, <laughs> in this nightmare. <laughs> I don't know. From the outside, it's going pretty well, but it seemed like you had brief like pseudo staff stints like mm-hmm. the New York Sun maybe mm-hmm. at a certain point but you've been a re- like very independent for a really long time which is a f- hard hard thing to do and did you flirt with staff jobs did you make a decision that you didn't want to do that or were the was the job that you wanted not there at a certain point you know the way i've sort of organized my journalism career which is maybe not recommended but I've always followed the stories as opposed to following the jobs. And in following the stories, I've been able to wind up with contributor relationships that have worked out okay. I've sort of followed the stories and followed the editors that I've loved working with. And Mm -hmm. there are some amazing editors out there. And, you know, having these relationships has enabled me to do the work I want to do, not sort of worry so much about where my next home is, 
So I've been lucky in that way. But of course, as I go off and do these long investigations, so the latest one is 10 years long, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the journalism world has sort of collapsed around me. And I'm, you know, not exactly 100% sure as I sit here what I'm going to be doing next. Just sort of, I think, following the sources and following the stories. And do you feel like in the world of healthcare investigation, is it possible to operate without those affiliations and still get the same kind of like information coming to you that you would if you're calling up from, you know, the New York Times? Yeah. You know, it's funny you should say that because I was at the Times for three years and I'm not sure that it actually helped me to get stories. Sometimes I think you can operate below the radar and get more information. But, you know, in regard to who returns your phone calls, I mean, some people will just never return your phone calls. And I've worked places where I'm on the masthead and people won't even return my phone calls. (laughs) So, you know, trying to put that question aside... I think I probably am doomed to stick with my strategy of just following the stories. Since my book, Bottle of Lies, came out, I've been contacted by a lot of whistleblowers. I bet. And so I'm sort of sifting through those contacts and seeing what feels important to me. So before we get to the book, I wanted to talk about a couple of stories. One of them is sort of tangentially related to the kind of stuff you've been covering, but you broke this big story in Vanity Fair about torture. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm interested first in how that story came about. That is a really interesting story. So I was contacted by Physicians for Human Rights by a person there who basically raised the question with me about why psychologists were alone among healthcare professionals in allowing their members to participate in what were essentially coercive interrogations. And we should set the time frame for this because this is before yeah. anyone yeah. really knew yes. all about this. This was what year would this be? Like it would have been uh, maybe 2005 I was contacted. I thought that was a really interesting question, and I was very interested in what was going on with the war on terror and following all of that. Um, you know, I had done a bunch of reporting on national security issues, and I began looking into that. I didn't know what I was going to find, but I wanted to write about the American Psychological Association, the APA. And so I pitched it to Vanity Fair. And uh, they said yes, but the one thing that I didn't tell my editor at the time is that I was pregnant and going in to deliver my first baby that day because I'd pitched it on the way to the hospital. Uh, By email? Actually, I ended up by phone. By phone on the way to the hospital? Yes. And then, because I figured it would take a while for them to get back to me. But two weeks later, he came back with a yes. But then I had a problem because then I had a crying baby and I hadn't told him. And finally, my agent was like, this is just ridiculous. If you don't tell him, I'm going to. So I was like, "Okay, Michael, I just also need to tell you, like, I have an infant. And I remember sitting there at my dining room table holding my 
two-week-old in my arms, surrounded by this ring of psychologists who had been involved with this task force, the American Psychological Association, talking about this process. They came to your house. They came to my house because of my situation, that I had this baby. (laughs) You know, and I've sort of felt like I've never wanted to stop working for one second, but I also feel like if you basically say, I mean, you know, because you have kids, that, you know, if you've got little kids, people are going to be skeptical about whether you can actually do the work. So I've erred perhaps too much on the side of not mentioning that. And anyway. <laughs> it's funny because I am I feel like I'm on the other end of that where mm-hmm. I feel like I've experienced in lots of different ways people telling me, you know, men never get asked, like, yes. can you have it all and all that sort of right. stuff. So I'm very, every time I want to move a meeting or do anything, I'm just like, I got kids. Right. I got to be here by five. Awesome. I got to be here by 430. I'm trying to like, uh, but it, it feels like unfair because then I just get credit for it. You right, know? So, exactly. As you I'm get tempted credit. to get right now. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, that's insane. So you just you just kept reporting it from I, I kept reporting. That on. And so what was interesting to me, so these psychologists dumped a whole bunch of documents on me about this task force in which this decision was made. And you know, it's one of these things where you can have a lot of documents and you can read a lot into documents, but you also have to be straight up, I think as a journalist when there's not much there. So there were these hundreds and hundreds of pages I read through every one, and I'm like, something is missing. And I think that thinking is really underrated for journalists because journalists are always supposed to be calling and interviewing, but just thinking. And I remember I went through a process of several weeks in which I just tried to figure out there was something missing, and I began thinking and going over my notes and looking at sort of the patterns, and I realized that in a way this APA task force was sort of a smokescreen for something else, which turned out to be true, which is that there were these two psychologists who had not participated in the APA, who were not part of this task force, who were sort of behind the curtain who had been mentioned in a couple of places in my notes, uh, Mitchell and Jessen. And I began focusing on them. And that somehow I began to realize that it was through a separate process that they were engaged in with the CIA, that that had somehow impacted the task force. But there was not an obvious connection. And then what I did is I turned to state records And Mitchell, and I remember because I was hunting, uh, James Mitchell had a very ordinary name and he was hard Mm -hmm. to find in public records. I needed his middle name in order to dig into public-facing documents because I couldn't separate him from all the James Mitchells out there. So I began digging through public records and I found his middle name, which was Elmer. Elmer. Well, that is not an ordinary middle name and that unlocked all these business records. So once I had Elmer, I could go to state business records, and I saw he had these psychology consulting companies with weird names like Mind Science and Knowledge Works. Yeah, they're in the story. Like, they keep changing. Yeah, creepy names. And it turned out that right before the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah, 
there was a state business record saying I'm terminating this company because I'm like going overseas. Uh, and that that, that interrogation, if people haven't read the story, that interrogation is the one that is central to the story in that it appears at first that the FBI is getting all the information they need from him uh, through normal procedures. Right. And then the CIA comes in with right. these uh, psychologists right. and uses these torture techniques. Right. So, you know, that was a case of sort of, you know, the thinking fast, thinking slow paradigm. I mean, I, that was really like a thinking slow thing with my head on the desk, thinking and thinking and trying to figure out, you know, there was a purported pattern, which wasn't actually what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, you know, now the um, My Vanity Fair article inspired this movie, The Report, right. which is out now, yeah. which is a great film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, but it's um, very good. With those types of stories, because this applies to a lot of your stories, I was curious if, I mean, you have this sort of, I don't think you would say this in the story, but there's a sort of banality of evil quality to how these doctors end up going down this road to becoming people who are advising on how to torture someone. Right. And I'm interested in, is what draws you to a story more the big systematic corruption or problem, or is it the smaller individual moral choices, because those both seem to appear in your work quite a bit. It's interesting. I think every journalist makes a different set of decisions about when something feels like a story. You know, that tingly, spidey sense you get, like there's really something here. And I think for me, like, I definitely try to keep the public good aspect of it in my mind. And maybe that's why I'm attracted to sort of pharmaceutical greed and evil doing because the stakes are so obvious as far as public health goes. Mm -hmm. You know, but usually you find out, I mean, in stories that kind of check those boxes where you have big public stakes, and then you also have usually greed of some sort, whether for power or money or sometimes both. And usually where you have greed, you often have fraud and in that case, you know, these psychologists were selling a fake science. They were making a claim that they had evidence that this worked, mm -hmm. and it didn't. Mm -hmm. That was just BS. It didn't. They didn't have data, and it didn't work. So I think, you know, that to me was a very attractive aspect of the story in that there was like a phony science here. And your first book was about counterfeit drugs mm -hmm. and how they get inserted into the drug supply. Yeah. And I remember when I met you many years ago, mm -hmm. that book had come out, I think. Mm -hmm. And did you think that you were done writing about the drug supply? Oh, at that God, point? yes. Oh, I, I hoped and prayed. You know, but sometimes you'll get a tip and you'll start following it and you refuse to kind of wave the white flag of surrender. So, I mean, that's really what got me into this second book, which is just to refuse to give up and <laughs> concede defeat. Well, it's also, it's just so, like the concept of the first book was so scary for just an ordinary person to say, the drug that I'm taking may be completely mm -hmm. counterfeit. It may be just completely fake yeah. and inserted into the drug supply and it may have ended up in this bottle. Right. And then to then add to that the possibility that the ones that are in fact real <laughs> but generic right. may also injure or kill you in some 
fashion, it seems like you're, I don't know, it seems like you're sowing terror amidst, <laughs> amidst you, the drug takers of America. You know, I think one reviewer was like, well, is she just sort of content to just make people terrified? And no, I mean, definitely not. I think when you get into these giant projects, you are doing it because you're hopeful that you'll change something for the better. But of course, you know, you also have a story to tell and you have readers to communicate with and you can't communicate with them unless you tell it well. So there is like this kind of tension between trying to tell the best story you can and trying to expose something terrible so it can be fixed. Mm -hmm. And there is this sort of underlying tension between those two things. So let's walk through how this latest book came about, because I think the whole story of it is so fascinating. So what was the first blip that got you interested in generic drugs? So in 2008, I get this call from Joe Graydon, who is the co-host of The People's Pharmacy. It's an NPR radio show. And I'd been on his program a couple of times before talking about my work. But this time he was just calling me to say that he was being inundated with phone calls and emails from listeners who took generic drugs and had experienced devastating symptoms, side effects, and he thought that there was something wrong with the drugs. He didn't know what. And he'd taken these complaints to the FDA and the officials there, their response was, oh, it's psychosomatic. The colors change, the shape changes, and, you know, patients react. So he didn't believe that at all. And he just said to me, you know, what is wrong with the drugs? So, you know, little did I know at that point that that question was going to lead me into this 10-year odyssey, which and it did. Did. He, did he sort of say, maybe you can figure this out in a way that I can't? Like, you have the skill yes, to figure this out. Yes, he actually said, I think somebody with investigative firepower, as he put it, needs to look into this. And of course, you know, saying that is like waving a red cape <laughs> in front of a bull. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I got sure I could figure this out. But, you know, actually, it turned out it was super hard to figure it out. You know, I started with this sort of consumer health approach to interview doctors and patients, mm -hmm. what was wrong with the drugs. And sure enough, I wrote this terrific and unobjectionable and really inadequate story in Self Magazine just talking about this phenomenon, patients reacting, doctors reacting, and knowing all the while, like, I'm not even coming close to answering Graydon's question. What's wrong with the drugs? Well, who the hell knows? Well, it's interesting you say that, though, because when I, I read the Self story, which was, it was a serious investigation more than 50 interviews, I think it said, went into it. So it wasn't like a throwaway 500-word piece or something. This was like a serious big investigation, but you'd concluded that you had not actually gotten to the bottom of it. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, what was wrong with the drugs? I documented in that article that something appeared to be wrong with the drugs. But then what? And I don't know where it might have ended, but about a month later, I got contacted by somebody calling himself $4 refill, which is what you'd pay if you get a generic at Walmart. And uh, he basically said, if you want to figure out what is wrong with the drugs, you need to look where they're made. And they're mostly made in India and China. And you think, does this person just sort of find your email on your website or they... 
how does this person end up with you? They saw the self article? Yes. Mm-hmm. They saw the self article and uh, they are pursuing that, you know. So, you know, you put something out in the world and you get something back and you follow the trail. It's hard to do as a freelancer. I mean, if you're at a newspaper and you can do incremental stories to advance something and you put a little bit out and you get a little back and you follow the story, that's harder to do as a magazine writer. But I began sort of following a trail. This person pointed me in a certain direction. And at that point, I was like, well, how am I going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. How am I going to look in India and China? Who's going to fund this is right. the first question that Who's going to fund this? I don't have a foreign bureau. I've never been to India. I've never been to China. I don't have sources over there. Like, what am I going to do? Long and short of it, I started hearing about a company called Rambaxi, Indian drug company. And there was a U.S. investigation into possible data fraud at Rambaxi. And the fraud was essentially falsifying quality data to make the drugs appear better than they were. And it was through following that investigation that that unlocked a whole world of possible fraud. And were you, you were chasing that before that investigation was really public? Because it wasn't settled until much later, right? Oh, yeah. No, it was absolutely ongoing, not public. It was sealed. It was confidential. So how do you get inside that when they don't, no one wants that out? Well, part of the way I got inside of it was that there was a whistleblower inside the company who had been sending documents to various people inside the government. And so... I was working that angle of it. I was basically trying to follow a trail of documents that was leaking from inside of Rambaxi. Ah. And so there's one huge document that's very, very important. Yeah. Did you have that the whole time, I wondered? No. Uh I did not have that the whole time. That is like the... In my view, the sort of mother of all documents, you know. Never heard of a document like this. (laughs) When you talk about corporate fraud, this was a document. It was called, inside the company, they referred to it as the SAR, Self-Assessment Report. And this was a report that was commissioned by the head of research and development who was beginning to get the sense that something very wrong was up with this company that he had recently joined. Uh, and commissioned his staff to research all the data related to every single regulatory filing that Rambaxi had made around the globe to regulators, saying, hey, here's our drugs, here are all the tests, here's all the data, and to try to figure out whether the data was real or fake. And the result of this internal investigation was this PowerPoint document, the SAR which basically stated it was like this confession of insane wrongdoing where 200 drug products in more than 40 countries were found to have been filed with fake data. Uh, So this was this internal confession. Incredible. That was, yeah, incredible. That was shown to a subcommittee of the board of directors. And after this presentation they got, and of course it took me, 
years to unearth the real story behind the document. Mm -hmm. But, you know, their response to this document was, uh, could we destroy this document and destroy the computer on which it was created, which they did like bit by bit, just (laughs) breaking down this computer. Literally, when I got to that moment where they said also they broke down the computer piece by piece, I just thought, where did this detail come from? Like, where did you get this detail? And how long did it take you to get this detail? It took a long time. I mean, it took a long time. You know, you have to sort of essentially try to report until you feel like you're in the room, which is always my goal is to like report until I feel like I'm inside the room so I can communicate that to readers. So that's what I had to do. And before the lawsuit became public and this company was clearly in very hot water, Mm -hmm. were you having to like go around and find ex-employees and Mm -hmm. how were you kind of triangulating everything? How many people were Mm -hmm. on your list, I guess? Yeah. So the good news is that there were a lot of people on my list. And that is because there was this trail of documents and a trail of emails, internal emails with all of these CCs. Right. I mean, lesson, if you're committing global fraud, try to like limit these CCs. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, there was this huge trail. And what was interesting, I mean, so I started cold calling across continents. You know, I mean, there were people in Europe, there were people in India, there were people just all over the globe. And my phone calls were triggering other calls and contacts from inside the company, Mm. you know. And I was going to the sort of pharmaceutical water coolers, the, um, you know, there's websites where pharma employees write in and complain about their bosses. And I was sort of in those sites and finding people that way. So I was just kind of bit by bit folding back this company Mm -hmm. to get as much information as I could. And, you know, turned out that... You know, there's this lesson that I feel like I learn again every time I report, which is never assume that everybody who's in a company is on the same team. Mm. I mean, there are people who want the truth out about their own companies. There are people even whose jobs it is to make the company look good and they still want the truth out about their own companies. So that's a lesson to go carefully but boldly in making calls and contacts. You know, you can't assume just from what somebody's job description is that they don't want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing. And you've dealt with a lot of sort of whistleblower types Mm -hmm. in different stories and particularly clearly in this book as Mm -hmm. well. Do you have a set strategy that you employ with trying to coax them along if they're a little unwilling to talk? Is it, you know, get this off your conscience or... How do you go about sort of keeping someone on the hook to give you information when they're obviously at risk? In this case, people were at even physical danger. You know, and and often, just to add to that, uh, whistleblowers are legally constrained against sharing information. So there can be all kinds of constraints. But as a mentor at the New York Times had once said to me, you have to identify the obstacles in order to remove them, which is really important. So, you know, what are the obstacles? And everybody's obstacles may be different. So what are the obstacles that that person may have toward sharing information? And how do you deal with those? You know, what assurances can you give to offset that or to navigate around those obstacles? So there's that. But also, I think, 
kind of making clear what your commitment to the story is. And I think that's very important in dealing with sources and whistleblowers, which is if you approach them casually and are shooting off an email that didn't take you a lot of time, I think you'll be met with little interest. But I think if you are able to demonstrate your own commitment to a story, that goes a long way. So, for example, I think one of the crazier things that I did, uh, a person who I thought was important to talk to, I had an opportunity for the first time to possibly speak with them in Beijing. And so I went to Beijing for a single conversation. You know, and that's the kind of demonstration of commitment that I think goes a long way in getting people to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Just to say, I'll pick up and go. You tell me when and I'll be there. Yeah. So then it seems like you had, I'm assuming here, but flipped from kind of one problem to another, which is trying to pry loose all this information to suddenly having, I mean, this particularly Rambaxi, there's other threads to the mm -hmm. story, but the Rambaxi one is just like a smorgasbord of scenes and wrongdoing and people just admitting wrongdoing and crazy internal documents. And then it struck me that it became a problem of how do you possibly organize all this information and how do you tell the story? So when did you... Do you feel like that's in your head all along or at a certain point you pivot to, all right, now I need to sit down and yeah. turn this into something? Well, so, you know, it took me about six months to write an outline for the book. It was so hard precisely for the reasons that you're saying and weaving together all these threads and doing all of that. One of the things that I do, especially for a big project, is I write memos as I go along. I write reporting memos. So if I go on a trip or I meet with an important source, I will write essentially a fact-checked memo. It's like a kind of background story that inventories all my reporting. And that, I think, is super important, at least for me, because I find if I'm going back eight months later, a year later, to write up my notes, there's no immediacy. I can't capture the feeling, I can't capture the environment. But if you do it as you go along, those background memos become the kind of like paving stones for the book. Do you do it actually on the reporting trip? Like when you get done with the reporting oh, that yeah. night? I mean, I try to do it certainly within a week of my trip as soon as possible. Yeah. So then you have all of those, you have the outline. And how did you sort of pick which people to bring forward, which people. There's a mm -hmm. wide constellation of people in, yeah. that are involved here. Yeah. Many of whom could have in some way right. been the lead figure right. in the book or not. You know, the question of characters was a little less difficult in this case. I mean, some people, probably I wish they'd been able to be bigger characters, but just would not cooperate. Uh, there were people who surprisingly did cooperate when I didn't expect them to. What's an example of that? I'm not sure that I can exactly say that, but, you know, I will I will tell you this, which is closing the book, I got sort of better responses from Malvinder Singh than I did from the FDA. And he's a former head of, yeah. the, of Rambaxi, yeah. the company that yeah. committed all of these Who's now, frauds. you know, under arrest in India for fraud. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so he was very... Sure, I'll tell you what happened he, from he my was, perspective. Well, or... I mean, he sent me written notes, like answers. I sent him, you know, four pages of questions, and he responded. 
And that's really crucial. You know, his answers, his viewpoints were, you know, boy, it's so much better when you have responses from people that you just animates the whole thing, you know? I was interested in this FDA inspector also, who's Mm -hmm. such an interesting character. And was he very willing to talk to you? Or was that a process of making that happen? You know, what I can say about that is that he very assiduously documented his inspections. And he became sort of famous inside the FDA and infamous in the generic drug industry for the way that he was doing his inspections. So to me, he was like a no-brainer of a character. What he did was amazing. He was a total detective inside these drug plants with really cinematic moments that were even record, you know, captured in his uh, FDA report. Truly, truly cinematic, yeah. chasing people down yeah. with bags full of evidence that yeah. they're trying to get. Yeah. I mean, you know, slow motion chase scenes inside sterile drug plants. That's <laughs> too good to pass up. I know. That struck me as just moments where when you get that stuff, you just, you're just like, this is gold. I can't believe yeah. this. This is real. Absolutely. <laughs> and there's another aspect of the book, which I feel like is cropping up now because I saw a thing mm-hmm. you posted on Twitter, just about there's a kind of national and cultural aspect of the books because a lot of the drugs are made in India. A lot of the book is based in India and what's happening mm-hmm. in these factories. And that's where some of these fraudulent tests take place. And some of the bad drugs are coming out of there and ending up in all over the world, arming people. Mm-hmm. And But there's also... There's a lot of cultural sensitivities about it, and I'm wondering first how you navigated that to begin with in terms of going there and yeah. doing that reporting. That's a great question, and that was a huge issue. I mean, the sort of cultural sensitivities around that. I mean, I think that Americans like to think of themselves as coming from a, a sort of culture that values integrity and honesty, and I think we've seen that self-identity sorely challenged in the last few years. And so I felt a lot of caution about coming at it from an American perspective where, you know, we know how to operate fraud-free because that's certainly not true. But I tried to let the Indian characters in the book tell the story about fraud in India. The main whistleblower in the book is Indian. He risked his life to try to bring this company to justice. I mean, it's extraordinary courage. And then one of the things that really expanded the book for me, I mean, the book idea was born out of this 10,000-word article I did for Fortune, which was about Rambaxi Mm -hmm. and the crimes at Rambaxi. And it was when I was reading reader comments. The article came out. It was being read all over the world. I was looking at the reader comments. And one reader was writing in, obviously, from India saying, well, you know, it's really this issue of Jugad in India that's bringing us all down. I was like, what's that word? Mm -hmm. So then it turned out this word expresses an idea which is really valued in Indian corporate culture. Jugad is a sort of the art of the shortcut. It's a Hindi word, and it's about getting to you know your desired goal by the shortest means possible. And so basically I began to sort of study that, study that in Indian corporate culture. 
after my Fortune article came out, a lot of whistleblowers contacted me, which made me realize it's not just Rambaxi. Rambaxi is the company that got caught. Mm -hmm. And so as I sort of delved into that and began hearing a lot about corporate culture, like these manufacturing plants, they all have a culture. I tried to really put the voices of Indians first in taking a look at that. Mm -hmm. But it, it's tricky. There's a lot of cultural sensitivity, as you say. And it seems like no matter your best efforts, there are probably people saying in India saying, well, this is just, this person is just expressing a sort of American superiority towards this culture. But now there's this, I don't know, insinuation in this article. Maybe you can explain it better than I understood it, that the Indian government is going to take action against you because of the book? Right. I mean, that really remains to be seen and is unclear. Basically, what happened was the book came out, created sort of a firestorm in India, and there were calls for the Indian government to look into the claims that were advanced in the book. So the Indian health regulator perused the book and dismissed it as fiction-filled stories. And, you know, it's on the basis of those claims that now it's being floated that the Modi government might take action against the book. Unclear, remains to be seen. I don't think that they are necessarily used to a lot of scrutiny of this industry. But you're also about to go to India. That's true. Uh, that is true. How, has this altered any of your how you're going to approach your trip or what you expect? You know, I don't think it's necessarily going to alter how I'm going to approach the trip, although it's certainly increased the apprehension of people around me, like my parents. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope and think that the trip will be okay, but there are a lot of sensitivities. It's a very nationalist moment in India, and the pharmaceutical industry is seen as a, you know, national success story. So there is a lot of sort of conflation of Indian nationalism, pride in the pharmaceutical industry. They're kind of at some point the same story. Well, the other kind of topical thing that seems to swirl around the book, because it's about generic drugs, and I felt like you take great care in the book to talk about the value of generic drugs mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. But there's always going to be these people who sort of say like, you're in the pocket, you're in the pocket of the pharmaceutical, <laughs> yeah. the the uh, the non-generic drugs. Wait, what's the name for non-generic drugs? Brand, brand, brand drugs. Brand yeah, drugs, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, you're in the pocket of them promoting something. And it reminded me you had done this piece about the Fast and Furious scandal, yeah. which also seemed like a thing where you know going in, there's going to be a bunch of people who right. dismiss you as being this, that, and the other. And do you prepare for that? Are you are you sort of on the lookout the moment it's published for that? Or does it ever surprise you, the vitriol that can appear on around those issues? Yeah. So in this case, I absolutely expected that kind of vitriol. You know, I was very clear in the book and in my reporting note to say, you know, I've taken no money from Big Pharma. Here is where all my funding has come from. It's come from, you know, my book advance and these independent sources, uh, which are basically, you know, fellowships and whatnot. So I really did expect 
you know, that kind of accusation. And I think for people in the generic world, talk about quality or questions about quality have long been viewed suspiciously as a sort of stalking horse for the big pharma agenda. You know, I will say when that accusation comes up, you know, you're in the pocket of big pharma. My husband says, oh, I wish because <laughs> <laughs> then we could pay our mortgage. Be, be but, a lot more money in that. Yeah, exactly. The, the pocket of big pharma is quite large. It is quite large, but I am not in it. You know, so that that allegation doesn't surprise me except to say, look, you know, we need generics. We all rely on generics, but we need them to be quality assured. So how do we get to that place? And now that it's out, it feels like for some portion of time, your full-time job becomes talking about these issues. And I'm always interested in talking to authors about the extent to which you are treading a line between activism for the idea that this needs to change or this needs to be monitored better, the inspections need to be better, all the things that a person could glean from reading the book, as opposed to saying, well, I'm just the person who puts this out in the world. I'm not the person who is advocating for one thing or another and where you kind of fall on that. Right. I mean, you know, it's a great question. Of course, the emails that I've gotten, I've gotten so many emails from readers, from doctors. What do I do? How can I know if my drugs are safe? A lot of questions that, on the one hand, you could say, well, that's not really my department because I just dig this stuff up and put it out in the world. You know, and on the other hand, these are questions that my work is provoking. So I feel like I need to provide some response. So one thing I did is I created a guide to investigating your own drugs, which is on my website you know, frequently asked questions. That's on my website, too. You know, there's this whole movement for solution-based journalism, Mm -hmm. not just putting something out there, but also providing the solution for it. I had drafted a sort of policy note, policy prescription for the book, which ultimately I didn't end up putting in the book with the feeling that that actually isn't my job. But You know, it's clear that there are solutions that do need to be adopted. So I do talk about those. You know, I talk about those. Mm -hmm. I'm out there. But it's not, you know, I am not a policy analyst. There's a guy in the book who was an investigative journalist who kind of went all in Uh on on starting an organization Mm -hmm. and being all about solving this problem. Not this problem, but related problems. Right. That's the other way to go. It's like this problem is so important to you that suddenly you become a full-time activist, I guess. Right. But you're not tempted by that. I am really not tempted (laughs) by that. No. I just, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe solving these problems is even harder than uncovering them. I'm not sure. But I think probably my best efforts lie in the uncovering part rather than in the solving part, as much as I would like to see it solved. So you mentioned in passing the world of journalism, falling a little bit to pieces or a lot to pieces all around us as you were working. I mean, you were on the book mm-hmm. for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So when you kind of like popped your head up and looked around, is your current thinking... I need a new approach because the approach that I was taking won't work in the future or uh, I'm really looking for answers here from you. I know. I mean, I I sort of think of what one of my editors once said to me, which is I just leap from melting iceberg to melting iceberg. Uh, Particularly apropos in our current age. Yeah, we're all like, you know, the last polar bear out there. Uh, 
in a decimated universe. Um, you know, some people have said to me, this is like a golden age of investigative journalism, in a way, sort of. And actually, I had a really interesting experience. I got very involved in the course of reporting this with an organization, Global Investigative Journalism Network, GIJN. Mm-hmm. Amazing group that has these conferences every other year. They were so helpful to me in reporting this book because they hooked me up with journalists all over the world, you know, some of whom I hired as I was reporting in these places. So I think there is kind of a new approach. There's a sort of fidelity now between, you know, the last remaining journalists on the planet um, that we can help each other and work together. But, of course, the question is, well, who do you write for? And how do you get funding to continue doing this work? And uh, I would like to think that, you know, if you have the stories, the question of venue will somehow solve itself. <laughs> but I don't know if that's true. Some days it feels like that, and then uh-huh. some days it doesn't feel I like that. I know. I know. So I, you know, I'm just, I think we're all just muddling through, basically. Well, I have a couple of other, hopefully not downer questions um, before we go. One of them is, just as someone who gets a lot of people coming to them with tips, whistleblower types, do you find that at all overwhelming? Like, you can't chase all of these. There must be things that you know there's malfeasance or you're, you don't know for sure because you haven't investigated it, but you know someone's coming to you with something and you just, for whatever reason, it's not a good story or you don't have time. Does that get to you, the volume of people coming to you and what you can't pursue? That's a good question. So since the book came out, I've been contacted by so many whistleblowers all over the world that I actually have created a spreadsheet of whistleblowers. Uh, yeah. And they're from all over the place. So I'm trying to figure out, is this a series? What does it all mean? Are they one-off stories? Are some of them not stories? And I don't know the answer to that yet. You know, you want to do every story, but of course you can't. You have to choose. So what's the big umbrella here? Mm -hmm. Other than just evil doing in the world, you know? Is there some sub-theme that's a little smaller than that? <laughs> right. Right. And as someone who, as you said, like ended up in this area where you do cover health or healthcare-related things, industry, over a very long period of time, do you feel like you have some uh, longitudinal perspective on things being better or worse? Like, does it make you feel that there will just be endless examples of this that you could chase for the rest of your life and many lives beyond? Yes. That is what I feel, that there will just be, there's just too much money. So as long as there is this giant pot of gold in the middle of this industry, the malfeasance will be endless. So what does that say about people? Because in the book, you've got these incredibly moral people Mm -hmm. who are at the center of this who just say, I can't, they were willing to ruin their lives, the one guy in particular, mm-hmm. in order to try and make it right. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these people who are just going along day in and day out and actually taking more steps to try to make sure that it gets covered up. 
where is your optimism or pessimism vis-a-vis people's morality? I am not known for my optimism. And I think it's hard to do this work and retain a sunny view of humankind. I hate to say that. You know, on the other hand, on the other hand, I do believe that there will always be whistleblowers. You know, and it's interesting to me that even in the sort of darkest spaces, even when it looks like everything is arrayed against them, there are people who will say, this just isn't right, and I must do something, which is uh, kind of extraordinary. Well, Catherine, thank you for coming on the Long Form Podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed it's our discussion. so great to have you. Thank you. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Catherine Eban for coming into the studio. Her book's called Bottle of Lies. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, to our intern, Marina Clementi, and as always, to our sponsors, Pitt Writers and MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.